Uh, about, uh, well, I guess it was in 2007, I was working uh, in a sales job, and my sales manager was a guy named Don. And I became really good friends with Don. Um, we, we built this really good relationship, but Don, uh, he was an interesting character. Don was about six foot one, uh, redheaded, just like my kids, uh, but he had a flat top. Uh, he kind of looked like a cross between Barney Fife and Richie Cunningham, if you know who those two are. If not, you're not as old as I am. But he, he was a great guy. So, so Don, he, he, was, he had this cutting sense of humor, real sarcastic. So for those of you who know me, he fit in great with me. Um, but he would just come. He was quick. When he would come over to my table to, for sales, to close the sale, he would just, uh, if the person wasn't buying, he made them feel terrible for not buying. That didn't ever help my sales, to be honest with you. They got mad at him. Um, but he just could quickly build these relationships. The interesting thing about Don was before he became a salesperson, Don was also a Tennessee state trooper. So we're sitting there one day. There's a group of us sitting there just kind of talking about life. And one of the guys in the group, we're waiting on some people to come and we can sell something to. That's the problem in sales. There's not always somebody to talk to. Uh, but we're just sitting there chit-chatting. And this guy says, hey, and this was an Australian guy. I can't do an Australian accent, but he... He hadn't been in the States very long. I'm not trying it. <laughs> he hadn't been in the States very long, less than a year. So he still had this thick accent. Didn't know uh, a whole lot about how the laws worked around here. So he's like, I'm driving to work this morning in an Australian accent. And I got a ticket. And Don walks over to him. It's like Don went back into state trooper mode. And he's like, well, buddy, you know how fast you's going? And the, guys, the other guy's name was Charlie. He's like, yeah, I was going 82 and a 70. He's like, well, that's your problem right there. He's going too fast. So Charles is like, what do you mean? He's like, there's people passing me. He's like, well, let me just tell you how this works. I used to be a state trooper. He says, I kind of sound like Randy Pafford there, don't I, actually? <laughs> Which is a lot what Don sounded like. I never thought about that. So, so Don's like, let me just tell you how this works. He's like, normally when we got a speed trap on the interstate, we, we, we're typically going to give you until you're 10 miles over the speed limit. He said, so if you're going 79 in an 80, you're okay. If you're going 82 in a, not in an 80, in a 70, you're going to get pulled over. That's just the way it works. So, so basically what Don is telling us, there's about five of us sitting in this group, is the law doesn't really matter. Um, basically, the law is whatever the Tennessee State Trooper determines the law is going to be. And generally, it's 80 miles an hour instead of 70 if you're on the interstate. But then Don continues like, but... Some of these guys, especially the new guys, are kind of jerks when it comes to this kind of thing. So if you go in 71 and a 70, they're going to pull you over anyways. So Don's telling us that when it comes to speed traps, there's a sliding scale. Uh, some guys are going to get you if you're going one or two miles over the speed limit. Some are going to give you 10 miles over the speed limit. How are you supposed to know what you're supposed to stick with? Uh, I tend to stick with, uh, we won't talk about what I tend to stick with then I'd have to have some confession time that we're not going to get into this morning. Don says the best way to do it, though, just stay with the flow of traffic, he says. If traffic's going 75, go 75. We're not going to pull you over because we're not pulling everybody over. If traffic's going 65, go 65, he said. Just stay with the flow of traffic. And I started thinking about that story this week, and I'm like, that's kind of how we live life. In general, that's what we do. We, we, 
We'll stay with the flow of society, trying not to step on anybody's toes, trying not to, to shake things up or stir up any, any dissension. We just kind of go along with the flow. We live in, in a way that doesn't uh, step out of the flow of what society is doing. And our thought is, we'll be fine. Uh, if, as long as we stick with what the flow is and don't shake things up, we're going to be all right. Everything's going to be good. Except Paul has totally destroyed that idea for these last few weeks. And we've been digging into the book of Romans. If you remember from Romans 1.18 all the way up through last week, he has been just totally blasting similar ideas. And he's basically said for these last two weeks, it doesn't matter who you are, whether you're an extremely religious person or whether you're a rebellious person who's living in opposition to God, it doesn't matter who you are, you're, there's no sliding scale. All of us are guilty, he says. So that, that brings us this question that we're going to talk about today. This question that's really at the heart of the human condition. And that is, how can God condemn guilt and save the guilty all at the same time? How does that even begin to make sense? How, how can he condemn people for doing things that are are against his will that we would call sin, while at the same time saving sinful people. Yeah, intellectually, that makes absolutely no sense to us. But that's what we are digging into today. Let's pray as we dig into Scripture this morning. Father in heaven, as we open up your word today and dig further into the letter to the Romans, Father, I pray that you will show us uh, from the text today, that you will reveal truth to us that maybe we haven't fully grasped before, and, and give us a deeper understanding of who you are and what your desire for us is this morning, Lord. And Lord, as you convict us, wherever we are falling short to you, God, that you would give us courage to respond to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So up until this point, as we have been in Romans now, this is our sixth week in the book of Romans. Up until this point, Paul has been destroying objections to the gospel. But as he's destroying these objections, he's putting up these objections that he knows are going to come, and he's knocking them down. And as he's doing this, he's building this tension that exists between humanity and the truth of the gospel. He's building this, this sense of this is not the way it can work and this is the way it should work, but there's no way to fix it. So there's this tension there that we are all guilty. And Paul, when he talks about guilty, he's saying we are all hopeless. There is absolutely nothing within us that can save ourselves. There is nothing within us that can, can make us good in God's eyes. We are without good. He said that last week. Who is good? Nobody. Not even one. Not even me or you or any other pastor out there, religious leader. No one is good, Paul says. So if that is the truth, if we are hopeless and none of us are good and none of us even do good on our own, where in the world do we turn? How in the world can this possibly be good for humanity? If you look at every religion out there around the world, throughout history, religion has, has been this quid pro quo kind of thing, which is basically people look to God, religion teaches, I will do this for you, God, 
if you'll give something back to me. I will live this way and do these good things for you, God, if you will, you know, let me into heaven, is what some teach. Or give me blessings, is what some religions teach. But every single religion out there teaches some sort of similar thing. It says we are broken, we're separated from God, something happened, and now we can't, we're, we're in uh, opposition to God, whoever they call their God. Something happened. And to fix it, we have to do something in order to fix it. Every other religion says that, but Paul totally busts that up. You may remember last week in, in verse 19 and 20 of chapter 3, Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. When he says every mouth may be stopped, he's saying you're eternally shut up. In other words, when every mouth may be stopped, that means death. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So Paul is saying right there, everybody is under the law, everyone is dead. So if religion teaches we have to do something in order to overcome this situation within ourselves. What is the difference between what religion teaches and what Christianity teaches? What's the difference in what religion and the Bible teach? What's the big deal about Jesus? That, that's something that a lot of non-Christians will ask. They'll say, I get this whole God thing. I believe in God. I understand there's this whole God thing. But what's the deal with Jesus? Why is that all Christians talk about? Why is it all about Jesus? Why is he such a big deal? And I'll be honest, that's a legitimate question. I mean, what is the big deal about Jesus? Why do we as Christians put so much stock in Jesus when every other religion puts stock in what we do? It's a legitimate question. And Paul, as he moves into this next section of his argument for the gospel, he begins to unpack what this looks like for us. I shared with you the very first week that we were in Romans what the thesis statement, really, what it's all about of Romans is. And it's all the way back in chapter 1, verse 16. Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if that is the thesis statement of all of uh, the book of Romans, then our next section, this passage we're going to look at today, the passage Robin read just a few minutes ago, it is the explanation of what that is. The passage that we're looking at this morning, it's vital to your faith, that you understand what Paul is teaching in this passage. It is at the core of the gospel in our understanding of the gospel. Here's how important it is. Douglas Moo, who's a modern-day scholar of Scripture, says... In this passage, in these verses that we're going to look at this morning, Romans 3, 20 through 26 says, he says, Rarely does the Bible bring together 
in so few verses, so many important theological ideas. Here, more than any other place in Romans, Paul explains why Christ's coming means good news for needy, sinful people. We can go back in history to some historical theologians. Martin Luther, the father of the Reformation movement, said this. He said, Romans 3, 21 through 26 is the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. This passage changed Martin Luther's view on everything. New Testament scholar Leon Morris says it is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. It's important to our faith to understand what Paul is saying in this passage. And it answers the question for us, what is the big deal about Jesus? What, what is it all about this, this craftsman that lived 2,000 years ago? What's the big deal about him? Paul lays it out for us. Verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So Paul he opened up this argument all the way back in chapter 1 saying, talking about the righteousness of God. Now he's answering that saying it has been manifested. He has brought it to reality. Although the law and the prophets do bear witness to it, it has been prophesied. It is apart from the law that his righteousness has been manifested. And then he continues here. He says in verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ, Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In uh, August of last year, August 14th of last year, I'm a baseball fan, so you get baseball references because it starts uh, the season in what, two weeks, I think? Something like that. Go Braves. I said go Braves. There we go. A little bit. Anyways, August 14th of last year, Drew Rasmussen of the Tampa Bay Rays is pitching the game of his life. Uh, he has gotten through eight innings, punched out 24 straight batters, no walks on only 79 pitches. In other words, he's pitching what is known as a perfect game. Nobody's been on base. He is three outs away from the first perfect game that's been pitched in Major League Baseball since 2012. First batter in the ninth comes up. It's Jorge Mateo of the Orioles. And first pitch, Mateo swings. He, he belts the ball into the left field corner, gets a double. The perfect game is instantly over. What Drew Rasmussen had worked for for eight innings ends on one pitch. He, he was almost perfect. Almost. He got the rest of the batters out. One run scored because uh, of... Where the ball was hit, he was able to come around and score, but no other batter got on base. So he was near perfect, one batter on base, one run across the plate, but he was still short. He didn't get to his goal. In the history of Major League Baseball, there's been 23 perfect games thrown. It is nearly impossible to happen. I don't know how long Major League Baseball's been around, but it's like 150 years or something 23 perfect games in that whole time span. There's not been one thrown since 2012. He was this close. And Paul in this passage is saying in verse 23, it doesn't matter how close you are. It doesn't matter if you're living a life that, that is near perfect. 
If everyone would look at you and say, they are stand-up people, they'll do anything for anyone, they'll take the shirt off their back and give it to anybody that needs it, Paul is saying, one batter still gets on base. You might be this close, but you still fall short. That term, fall short, that Paul uses, it's actually an archery term. It means to miss the mark. And in Paul's day, archery was a thing that was well-known, so they knew what he was talking about when he said this. And basically what it's saying is, let's say you're in an archery, I don't know what they call them, competition, tournament, I have no idea, matches. We'll just make it up. We got any archers in here? Good, so nobody knows. What was that? Competition, all right. Archery competition. They give you three shots, and you hit the, the, the bullseye with shot number one. You're perfect. You hit the bullseye with shot number two, you're perfect. Shot number three, you fall just outside the bullseye, you're near perfect. Paul's saying that's all of us. You're not perfect, you fall short. You miss the mark. How most of us live our life is to say, I'm going to shoot my three arrows. And I got all three in the bullseye. And we say, how did you get all three in the bullseye? Well, I shot mine over there and I went over and drew the bullseye around what I was shooting for. That's how most of us live life. And Paul's saying... All of you, all of us, every single person who's ever lived on the face of this earth, you miss the mark, period. But there's a, a big but at the beginning. That sounds bad. At the beginning of this passage, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law apart from any rules that we have to follow, apart from keeping this, this standard, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from all of that through faith for those who believe. That idea of believe gets a lot of us in trouble because we live in a time, and, and maybe it's been this way throughout much of church history, but I know it's been this way throughout my life, this time of what's known as easy believism, which is if you just believe Jesus is real, then you're going to be saved and everything's going to be good and you're going to go to heaven and, and, and everything's taken care of. That is so unscriptural. Because Scripture teaches us that, you know, Satan believes in Jesus. The demons believe in Jesus. Um, they're not saved. So how can just believing in Jesus get us saved? But that's not... The English translation kind of does this a little un, injustice or unjustice. Um, because really what that word that is used here means, in my study this week at least, I found this out. Uh, I can't pronounce the word, but it's something along the lines of pistuo. And, and that's more than just this idea of of believing, it is full-on commitment. Meaning that, that you don't just believe something's true, you believe in it. Meaning you are putting your everything about you into that. Fully committed to whatever it is. All in. Not just a raised hand in a worship service, not just saying a prayer or walking an aisle. It is full-on commitment when Paul says, for those who believe. This is what makes the gospel different. Now, I, I believe, because I'm optimistic, that the Braves have a really good shot at winning the World Series this year. 
And if that happens, I am going to be extremely happy come October, or now it's into November. But I'm not fully committed to that. I believe it, but I don't believe in it. I'm not putting my money on this. I'm not betting anything on this. I think it can happen, but I'm not fully sold in to that idea. But the gospel is so much different than just this idea of doing good or believing good. This is why Jesus is such a big deal. This is why this question matters of what's the big deal about Jesus. So we get to the second part of this sentence, the second half of this sentence. Back up to verse 23, which we just read, but it tags into the next verse. So, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God verse 24, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There's a whole lot of big churchy words right there in, that, in those few verses. Uh, Robin did a great job of saying propitiation this morning. Is that a word anybody ever uses in normal conversation, propitiation? No, no, not a word. Um, but she did a good job getting that read, and then she did a good job having her phone read it back to us as we were in prayer time <laughs> this morning. You're welcome. Let, let's look at what some of these churchy words are, because it is, even though they're big churchy words, it's important that we have an understanding of what Paul is saying here. And, and the first word that he throws out there is the word justified. Justification is what we're talking about here. And, and to be justified means that we are declared right, meaning we are no longer guilty. We are justified. We are in good, perfect, legal standing before God. It's like if you were to go before a judge and you've been charged with some crime. The judge looks at you and says, you're justified, you're not held guilty. They probably wouldn't use the word justified, but you're not guilty. Your, your slate has been wiped clean. That is what this word means. That's what Paul is writing. But we have this often this confusion of what justification looks like for us. And we'll say, oh, I got saved when I was x age whatever age it may have been and for the course of my life god is justifying me he's he's making me justified before him but that isn't what the scripture says the scripture tells us that in the moment you receive jesus and you commit your life to him it is instantaneous you are right then in that moment justified it is not a lifelong process to where you are being justified it is right there in that moment it happens the lifelong process we go through is being molded into the image of the Savior, being made uh, pure, and that's the word sanctification. They're two very different things. So Paul says we are justified. We are immediately justified. And it's, it's vital, crucial that we understand that, that for you to be right, there is nothing you can do. So God did it. He makes you justified before him. Apart from the law, he says up at the beginning of this passage. Second word, we use this word quite often. It's this word, word grace. And grace is a word that while we use it, we don't always get it. 
we don't always understand what grace means. Uh, I was 17 years old, and I was working at Dollywood way back in the day, which, woohoo, Robin was on TV. We're going to pick on Robin. Everybody see her on the news the other day? 35 years. She started at Dollywood when she was six months old. <laughs> they featured her on, on television. It was, and she didn't even tell me about it. I had to see it on Facebook. Anyways, I was working there when I was uh, 17 years old, and uh, sitting in the break room on lunch break one day, and there's three of us in the break room, me, a friend of mine, another co-worker, we're all just sitting there talking, and one of the co-workers, she gets up and goes to the, in, in this break room was also a, a cash office where we had to go and get our, uh, I was in games, so those little aprons they wear, so she was going to get her apron back so she could go back out to work, her break was over, and while she's going, the other guy in the room, he looks at me, he's like, shh. And he grabs this chemical, uh, which I believe was rust remover, and he goes over to her drink, and he pours a little bit of it in there. Now, I'm 17 years old, so I'm sitting back. I'm like, so what do I do here? Uh, should I tell her? I don't. I didn't tell her what was going on. She walked over, and she picks up the drink and takes a big swig of it, and she could tell instantly there's something in that drink. The other coworker just busts out laughing. He tells her what he did. And it's not good. I mean, you look at the label on this chemical, and it is, uh, if you ingest it, it can lead to death kind of thing. So immediately they call the, the safety office, they get her to safety, and then take her straight to the hospital to have her stomach, whatever they do, pump it out or whatever they do. Um, and luckily nothing came from that. I get called into the boss's office, asked to tell my story, what happened, so I tell him what happened, and the boss says, uh, so you saw this happen. You are just as guilty as the person who put it in the drink. Uh, you could have stopped this and left it with just a, a prank that went undone. She looks at me, and she's like, I ought to fire you, but I'm not going to. It's the first time you've messed up. I'm not going to fire you, she says. You're getting a written warning. There are consequences. This is going in your file. Everybody's going to know if something happens later that you have this in your file. The other person got fired immediately. I did not get fired only because of grace. I should have been fired. I fully deserve to be fired. Now, that boss ended up being my wife, but she was not at the time. <laughs> she was not showing me any favor because of that. I promise you, this was several years before we even started dating. But she showed me undeserved grace. That's what grace is. It is undeserved. It is a free gift that you do not, that I do not deserve at all. And it's without merit. It's not that you can go do something to get this gift. It is just given freely, undeserved. There's still consequences to, to the things that we do in life. But Paul is saying you are justified by grace, totally undeserved in and of yourself, anything that you can do. And then he uses this other big churchy word called redemption. Now, that, that is a word that we use because I used it the other day. Uh, I, there's a new Chick-fil-A on Highway 66. Anybody been there yet? I'm not going to tell you how many times I've been there. It's been open a week, and I, I've kept them in business this week. <laughs> but actually, I hadn't because I was given some free... Uh, cards for free meals. Uh, so I go up to the counter or to the drive-thru and I order my meal and they say, 
uh, a chicken sandwich, some fries and a drink, that's going to be, I don't know, it's like 10 bucks. But it's not. I have this card. And they scan the card and they say, it is zero. You get to go on and, and enjoy your free meal. But it wasn't really a free meal. Somebody paid for that meal, right? The, the owner of Chick-fil-A paid for that meal. They paid the full price for that meal. It cost me nothing. It cost them whatever the cost of that meal is. You know who it really cost? It cost the chicken everything in that meal. <laughs> Didn't cost the owner as much as it cost the chicken. That is what redemption is. It is paying a price for something for someone else. It is we don't pay the price. It is paid for us. As Paul is writing this, he's writing it with this idea of slavery. Slavery was common in his time. And for a slave to get out of slavery, they had to have a redeemer, someone who would come, pay the price for the slave, and free the slave. And that is what Paul is equating this to. He's saying we are slaves to sin. He taught us that in the passage last week. We are slaves to sin, and Jesus is paying the redemption for you. He's paying the price. You get to go for free. It doesn't cost you anything, but it costs Jesus everything. That is what this idea of redemption means. Jesus lays down the card, the coupon, whatever you want to call it for your life, and you are no longer a slave to sin. In that moment, you are no longer a slave to sin. And then we get to the big churchy word, the biggest one of them all, propitiation, because none of us has ever used that in a sentence outside of reading Scripture. And that idea of propitiation, it means an atoning sacrifice. I had to look this up this week because I, I, I knew the idea of what it meant, but I didn't know the actual definition of propitiation. It means an atoning sacrifice. And, and what Paul is referring to is the Old Testament Day of Atonement. When a family would get, take their, their spotless, most perfect lamb that they had, and they would take it to the priest on the Day of Atonement. And the priest would take that lamb and lay it on an altar. And then the patriarch of that family, the father of the family, would go and lay his hand on the head of this lamb. And then he would confess the sins of the family for the whole past year. Then the, the priest would slaughter the lamb, sprinkle the blood on the altar, and that was to appease God's wrath temporarily. What Paul is saying is Jesus fulfills that permanently. It's not something that you have to do every year on the Day of Atonement. He has appeased that. He has been the propitiation. He has already atoned for all of your sin. This is why John the Baptist, when Jesus is coming on the scene and walking up as John is baptizing people, he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, it's the Lamb of God. Because Jesus would be the sacrifice for all of atonement. There's one part in this that, that people often get kind of hung up on. And, and I've had, especially when I was doing youth ministry, students would ask me this question. So what happened to everybody in the Old Testament? Jesus didn't come to the New Testament. What happened to them? How did they end up 
being saved or redeemed or whatever word you want to use. And Paul says it right here. He says, In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. And that's not saying that he just let them go. He's saying in that moment he was letting them go unpunished because the hope of the future punishment of those sins, the hope of the future sacrifice. So Old Testament saints were saved not on a lamb that was sacrificed on an altar, but on the promise of a Messiah who would come and pay the price for all of them. The gospel is that we are slaves. None of us good. None of us can do anything in and of ourselves to be restored to God. And there must be a justification. We, we have to go before the judge. And as we stand before the judge, he's either going to look at us and say, this is your payment for your sin, which will be death separated from God in hell. Or he'll look at us and say, you've been covered by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The gospel is we are slaves, that we must be justified, that there has to be a price that will be paid. And you can't do it. So Jesus did. That is what it is all about. That is why Jesus is such a big deal. And it is available now. To all of us, not when you get it right or you feel like you're good enough, it is available to all. Martin Luther had a, a Latin phrase that he used quite often. It was simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified while still a sinner. In other words, you can't fix yourself. He will justify us. He will save you right now, even if you are in the deepest sin you can imagine. He will pull you out. Jesus took it all on the cross. Some of you right now, you, you can think of sin that's still going on in your life. He took it. Every bit of it. On the cross, Jesus, he became that husband who's neglecting his family, his children. On the cross, Jesus became the drug addict who can't shake his addiction, took the punishment. On the cross, Jesus became that teenager who's lying to their parents about whatever's going on in their life. On the cross, Jesus became the adulterer who was ripping apart a family. On the cross, Jesus became that religious person who is a prideful hypocrite and points fingers at everyone else and never at themselves. On the cross, he became all of that, took our sin upon his shoulders under that terrible, terrible weight bearing the wrath of the Father. He took it for you. Paul tells us in this passage, it is only available by faith. 
nothing that we can do. Martin Lloyd-Jones summed it up this way. He says, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work. And he rests on that alone. So as we close this morning, that is the question. Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? These first few chapters of Romans have pointed out our glaring deficiencies as human beings. But today's text tells us there is hope. Have you really placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Have you believed in Him? Not just believe that He exists, fully committed. Not a prayer. You can be saved without ever uttering a prayer. It's not a raised hand. It's not even a a baptism. It is fully committed. Not, Not perfection. That is what He seeks from us, and that's what He's molding us into through sanctification throughout our lives. But it's not your perfection that saves you. It's Jesus' perfection that saves you. Have you really placed your faith in Jesus? I've told you all before, I, I walked an aisle, I prayed a prayer when I was seven or eight years old. That did not save me. I had no idea what I was doing. I was not committing my life to Jesus in that moment. So God saved me when I was 13. But some people are still hanging on to this false assumption that, oh, I prayed a prayer to VBS when I was six, so I'm saved. That is not salvation. Now, don't take me wrong. You can get saved at six, year old, six years old at a VBS. But I have given the gospel at a VBS when 80 kids responded, and I know they did not know what they were responding to. What are you hanging on to? Have you really put your faith in Jesus Christ? So so what does that really look like? Probably summed up really well in Acts 2.38. And just a general summary of that is, this is what it looks like. You repent, you're baptized, and you're filled with the Holy Spirit. That word repents, another big churchy word. But you can't be saved if you don't do it. And here's what repent means. It's a big churchy word that we hear that if you're not a Christian or you're new in church, it makes no sense to you. It simply means 
you turn from what you're pursuing and you turn around and pursue Jesus. You turn from your sinful, whatever pursuit in life that you have, and you pursue the righteousness of Jesus fully committed. That's in its simplest terms. Have you repented? Have you really turned from your pursuit in pursuing Jesus 100% fully committed? Again, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have those days where it feels like we're not chasing Jesus, but are you continually turning back to him for your hope? Acts continues that we have to be baptized. And some of you are like me. You got baptized when you were a kid, but you weren't saved. Scripture's clear. Baptism is an act of obedience of the person who is saved. So if you got saved after you were baptized, you got to be baptized again to be in obedience to Jesus Christ. Does baptism save you? No. Commitment to Jesus Christ saves you. But baptism is commanded. It is an act of obedience. So maybe you've had in, in the back of your mind, I got saved, but I've never been baptized. Do I really have to do that? It's probably best not to start off your relationship with Jesus by being disobedient to him. So do you have to be baptized? If you want to be obedient to Jesus, you have to be baptized after you got saved. And then you'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts says. Every believer filled with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that gives you the ability to live a life that pursues Jesus because we can't do it on our own. It gives you, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit gives you the ability to understand spiritual things, to understand Scripture, to understand what we need to do in order to live the life God has called us to. And it's also a convicting thing when we're indwelt with the Holy Spirit on those times when we do sin, we know it. He convicts us. So that's the question today. Have you really placed your faith in Jesus? Have you really repented? Have you followed in believers' baptism? Are you experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life? As the band comes back up, I want to ask you to just take a moment on your own. With nobody looking around, just you alone with God. And analyze your relationship to Him. How do you answer those questions? The question is, have I really committed my life to Jesus? Did I repent? Did I follow in scriptural baptism? Am I experiencing the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? If you're not, you're probably not saved. If you need to be baptized, we're doing baptism next week. So I'm going to ask you, to just come this morning and tell me next week, I want to be baptized. 
If you don't come this morning, you come next week, want to be baptized, we'll still, we'll still do it. But we're going to be set up next week to baptize um, for you to follow in that command of Jesus. But some of you, you really need to get it right with the Lord and place your faith in Jesus Christ for the very first time. Not your faith in a prayer you said years ago, but fully committed to the Savior. Father in heaven, would you move this morning? Lord, I pray right now that you are shining a light on those in this room who, number one, need to fully surrender to the gospel, surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. A realization that they've been playing a religion game or a church game but they've never fully placed their faith in Jesus. And God, for those in this room who have followed Jesus with their life, who've, who've really believed, really committed, but have yet to follow in baptism, God, would you show them that it is an act of obedience that they would surrender to that today. Lord, would you move? Would you stir the hearts of those in this room or those who are joining us online today to respond to you however you would have them respond? In Jesus' name, amen. If the Lord has moved in your heart today as the band sings, spend time with God this morning. Come, lay it on the altar if you have something you need to lift up to the Lord or come find me or one of our elders, Jesse or Craig in the back or Scott over here on the side. We would love to walk with you through what surrendering to the gospel looks like if you have any questions. If you are being called by God into baptism, move this morning. Don't wait. Don't put it off. Be obedient. As the band leads, would you move today?